Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Means, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I get started on today's episode, just a reminder for everyone to check us out on social media via Twitter at LeftPOC, Facebook at LeftPOC, and anywhere else where you get your social media. And of course, your podcast. You can always just search for at LeftPOC. And we are available on Patreon, of course. All of our episodes of there are there and some additional goodies. Um, all of the episodes for Left POC are free, materials as well. But if you feel so inclined, you can always donate a dollar or more per month on Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. We would greatly appreciate it. Um, it helps us keep things running in the background. Um, and for those of you who may not know, if you're just stumbling upon this podcast for the first time, it also is what allows us to pay our guests. And, um, and when I say pay our guests, I mean a very small little remuneration for their time and energy dedicated to the show for interviews but also uh, we do a matching donation to the organization or charity of their choice uh, as a way to give back to the community we also support other podcasts particularly those who make under $500 a month um, and who deal with leftist issues Um, and we also uh, make other donations as well throughout the year Um, so anyway Make sure you check us out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash leftpoc. So I'm going to get started. Um, Oops, I did it again. I fell asleep. It is really, I mean, I I used to make fun of my own mother because she, I would say around when I was in like college or something, sometimes she would get really tired and just like pass out on the couch after work at like 4 or 5 p.m. and not wake up until 8 and then like eat dinner watch a little TV and then fall back asleep. Um, and now I feel like I have a similar pattern, except mine is skewed much later. Um, I still am on like a nap schedule, if that makes sense. So instead of sleeping through the night myself, like my baby sleeps through the night, but I don't sleep through the night. So what happens is I will like be working and doing stuff. And then, um, my daughter's awake until around, a, around seven thirty or eight. That's usually when she goes to sleep between seven thirty and eight. Um, and then after that I eat dinner and then usually I'm so exhausted that I go to sleep after that. Um, I will pass out on the couch, sometimes nodding, like in the middle of dinner, I will sleep for a few hours and then I'll wake up at like, you know, 12 or one o'clock. And then I realize what has happened and I get up frustrated that I haven't been awake for the past three hours. Um, And then I'll do housework, like putting dishes away and um, cleaning some areas that my daughter has like destroyed. We call her the hurricane because that's literally what she does. She like goes through the house and just (sighs) pulls stuff out everywhere. Um, And then... I will probably continue the laundry that I was working on and then get started on whatever school-related work I need to do, like writing papers or looking at um, any sort of documents or readings that I need to do, getting ready for school for the next day, uh, getting ready for the train ride. So so there's like all this other stuff that I end up doing, packing her lunch, etc. Getting her clothes together for school blah, 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 blah. There are all these activities that I end up doing. And then usually it'll be by that time, once I'm done with all of those things around like four or five. And then in some cases, it's just time for me to go to work, right? Like to go to school. Um, And in other cases, it means that I'm like, just going to start going to bed for real. And then I will wake up. So I'll go to bed at like five or six. And then I'll wake up at like eight or nine. <laughs> so it's just these weird intervals of naps. It's not really, it's like a constellation of naps and not really sleep. So my apologies. I've been doing that for the past couple of days unintentionally. I had done so well on Podmas in the beginning and I had set my intentions to record every single day. And that just isn't realistic for someone who has a schedule like mine. And also to quite frankly is dealing with chronic fatigue. Um, I'm like, I have these bouts of fatigue uh, quite a bit. They're related to my MS and stuff, but I just, 
it's frustrating because I'll be feeling normal one day and then the next day I'll feel like someone hit me back with a truck or like the best example I give is it sort of feels like your bones are wet. So you know how like towels are, like if you wet a bunch of towels, how heavy they are and they just kind of like pull you down with their weight, right? Well, it's kind of like if you can imagine the way I consider the physical fatigue is as if my bones are towels instead of bones and they feel like flimsy and weighed down from the from the fatigue. So like if the fatigue is some sort of liquid or water um, and my towel bones are drenched in it, <laughs> It sounds really silly, but that's the only way I can convey what it feels like. It just is a very weighty, heavy um, feeling on the bones. Like you just feel so tired, like you can't move. Um, and that's how I've been for the past couple of days. Like truly, I've been so tired. I normally, I mean, the commute that I have between Baltimore and New York is about two and a half, three hours each way by train. But the problem is that sometimes like I just am so tired when I get home because I do it both ways each time I go to New York. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm in New York to teach and like go to class um, for that class that I teach. And then I have, so that's about, again, two and a half, three hours each way. Um, I have to wake up really early on the days that I go in. And then I get home in the after, like Tuesday, Thursday, I get home in the afternoons, like late afternoon around six or so. And then on, um, on Wednesday, I go in a little bit later and get home a lot later. So I'll go in at like, I leave my house at like 11 a.m. Um, and then I will come home around 10 p.m. And what's 10 p.m., 10.30. But what's funny is that even on those days that I wake up later, like on Wednesday, I still get up, technically I get up early because my daughter has to go to school. So I get her ready. And then I, you know, she wakes up at like 6.30 She's a morning owl. She's a, she really likes being up in the morning. She likes, she's a morning person. She's happy in the morning. She's, you know, that's when she's her best. Um, so she, she wakes up around six 30. So I'm up automatically with her, you know, um, getting her together and stuff for school. And so, yeah, I don't really sleep that much. And then I'm just tired on top of that from the commute. And then I'm tired in general because of the MS. And so like, this week, for whatever reason, though, it hit me so hard. It was like some sort of cumulative exhaustion that happened because normally I'm tired, but I'm not this tired. Um, and I think it was that combined with some sort of fatigue, just like low energy and all of it. And so while I had started off with lofty goals of recording every single day for Podmas, it just wasn't happening. So I'll do, as I said, some makeup episodes. Some, day there, some days there may be more than one episode um, to kind of make up for that. I think tomorrow, if I have the time, maybe one of those days. Um, because I definitely want to do a part one of a left POC of the week episode. And then I may do some other stuff um, as well. So I will keep you all posted. Also, we're going to have some guests next week. So um, that'll be fun and different. <laughs> because I know y'all are probably tired of hearing just from me. Um, but we will have some guests. We'll have Richard back on as well at some point um, soon. So yeah, be on the lookout for that. Um, in the meantime, let's get on with the show. <laughs> So today I actually want to talk about diversity on screen and how it's devolved into some kind of like morality play nonsense. So, you know, I'm one of those people who I really support the idea of diversity. I think racial, ethnic, sexuality-based diversity is really important. Um, I think that unfortunately some people use those as shorthand for class diversity when that's not always the case, right? Like you can have a lot of people of color in the room and it doesn't mean that they're all um, from different class backgrounds. Um, it's likely because of the way, you know, our society is stratified in the United States, but you can't assume that and it's not a given, right? Like I've definitely been to events and things like that where I was the only person in the room as um, in a room full of people of color, but who was like not rich, right? Like who was, um, someone who grew up lower middle class slash poor, depending on the day. Right. Um, and I think that there is this kind of, as I said, you know, an expectation that all people of color had it rough 
or, you know, had difficulties, adversities growing up financially or whatever. And that's not necessarily the case. There is an elite class of people of color in this country. Um, and when I say people of color, I mean that, like, literally um, people who are not white, um, just as there are poor people who are white, right? So I think that sometimes using those categories as shorthand uh, is, a, is a failed strategy, right? It's something that doesn't quite pan out, doesn't match reality. But that being said, I think in film in particular, it's important for people to have representation of themselves, to see themselves on the screen, um, and to see themselves represented in a, a wide variety of ways, right? I grew up with, you know, some some slightly better um, representation, let's say, for example, of women of color who had darker skin and particularly black women who had darker skin, right? Even Latinas who had darker skin. I think nowadays when you turn on the TV, it's like, I, I mean, I always complain about this online, but even commercials, you don't see dark skinned black women. And if you do see them, their daughters, even if they have, so even if the mom has dark skin, like very dark skin, the daughters always have very light skin, you know, loose curl patterns. They look like they could be biracial or have like some white ancestry. And the son, however, and the husband will be allowed to be black and have dark skin, but the mother and especially the daughter, regardless of age, is almost always light skinned with loose curl pattern. And you have to, I mean, I kid you not, like I spent like one, one weekend, I just kind of like wrote it down. I was like, okay, let's see how many commercials that portray families or just women of color in general show women with darker skin. And it was, the numbers were appalling, you know? Um, and I'm not even a black woman with dark skin. I'm a black woman, but I have medium brown skin, like kind of, and, and I just, just seeing that is so um, disgusting. Like the, the way that darker skinned black women are erased constantly. And I would say when I was younger, like in the eighties and nineties, oddly, I saw more darker skinned black women on TV than now. It's kind of this very strange, not to say that even then they were fairly portrayed, but I would see women who had medium to dark brown skin more frequently than I do now on television. I remember watching, you know, like Cosby show, Different World, and you would see like a wide array of, of skin tones for black women on those shows. Um, and nowadays it's like, you don't really see darker skinned black women. Um, even like, uh, you know, Saved by the Bell and these like very popular quote unquote white shows, right? Um, Lisa Turtle had darker skin. So it's just kind of weird. Like, I don't know why. Um, I mean, I know why, but I, I think that it's kind of strange, at least that the 80s and 90s were more progressive on this front in terms of colorism in some ways than, than we're dealing with now. And I think that so I think that that's important in terms of representation because it goes towards self-esteem, your sense of self-recognition, your sense that like, oh, other people like me do exist in the world. I'm not the only one. Um, particularly if you're in an environment, let's say a school or work environment where you might be one of the only or the only black person or say, for example, you go to a predominantly black school where you see people of color of all different um, like black people of all different skin tones, but then you turn on the TV and the only black people you see have very light skin. That's got to do something to like your psyche. You know, I think it, it absolutely will have an effect on you. Um, and the sense that you have of what you can do, uh, you know, that your sense of role models, your sense of, of beauty and self-assurance and things like that, that, that all um, is shaped by what you see in the media. And so I think that in terms of diversity on screen, I'm for it, right? I think it's very important to have visual um, representation, ethnic and racial um, diversity on the screen, et cetera. I don't think um, that we've gone far enough with that. I think in particular, we still have a problem of having the person of color and most frequently a black woman or black gay man sometimes, um, all, you know, that's been getting a little bit better too, but to have um, a black person as either a token. So like, look, we have diversity. We have that like one black person and, or they're the best friend, right? They're kind of like the support animal <laughs> for the, the main character. And I say support animal, not to call the black person an animal, but to call the setup 
one that puts them in that sort of position, right? So they're kind of there for comfort of the main white character. They're there for support of the main white character. They're there like following around faithfully the white character as if a pet, right? Um, and I saw that, I remember, you know, I used to call the the phenomenon that was brief and albeit changing, thank God, um, as well in the late 90s, early 2000s of having a sort of gay pet a gay best friend that operated as if a pet, right? Um, and I think that that is, as I said, getting a bit better, but it's still something that, you know, people who look back on it are critical of because we say, okay, it's good that there's representation of gay men, but is that representation flawed because it puts them in a position where they are basically, um, like I said, the support animal for the main, the primary characters. Um, and prim usually it's like, it would be like a white woman character. I think that that trope was also replicated in reality television. Um, so if you look at shows like Real Housewives of Atlanta and things like that, they would have, you know, a gay best friend or a gay decorator or something who would kind of serve that role, fulfill that role, despite the fact that the Real Housewives franchise is run by Andy Cohen, who himself is a gay man. Um, but it seems as if he's perfectly fine with a wide array of tropes and, and stereotypes for many people, including the group that he himself is a part of. So, um, you know, it's clear that diversity in and of itself, just kind of a flat diversity is not always the best approach because diversity can look a lot of different ways. And some of those ways only re serve to reinforce stereotypes and tropes that uh, are pre-existing in the field of film and TV and media. But I think, um, you know, some, some shows are trying to break up these, these issues and have, you know, primary character, main characters who are people of color have a protagonist who is a black woman, for example, or whatever. I think things are kind of getting better, uh, somewhat on the plot areas. Uh, if not the colorism area, right, which I already talked about, that kind of is stagnant. Um, and I think also that there are still, shows that may have people of color as central characters, but then have black women in particular as these kind of either support, uh, figures, friends, best friends, um, and, or as someone who serves as sort of an obstacle to the main character, an impediment to the main character. Um, so you'll often see, like these black women receptionists or black women, you know, front desk person, main, you know, head nurse, head police officer, whatever, intake person who is always like 99.9% .9 of the time is a darker skinned black woman who is heavyset and um, who is not traditionally attractive. And they always have one person or more like that where the, the protagonist, usually a woman, although sometimes a man has to kind of encounter this person as if like encountering a boss in a video game, you know, like the old school video games where you had like 10 levels and you would defeat a boss at every level, right? It's like the angry black receptionist would be a boss at some level or another that the main character has to jump over and like kill to get what they need. That's still a problem. Like that, that trope is, it just will not die. Like it just will not die. It's in so many movies and TV shows and even like quote unquote progressive ones, right? The ones that get diversity right in every other aspect of the show, they always have this character. So again, long way to go. But I think that what I see as sort of the counter to this, which I find equally frustrating and problematic, is this using diversity as a point of morality sort of show, um, or even if they're not very diverse, using the, the issues of, you know, liberalism and um, certain values that are assigned through liberalism as like good, quote unquote, good values, um, to turn the show into a kind of morality play for the 21st century, right? Um, that is so frustrating. And I think it really cheapens the, you know, viewing experience, right? Um, I noticed this in particular for Netflix shows. So if you watch a lot of Netflix shows, I mean, I don't really watch them a lot, but I'll have someone in the background or I notice, I'll see like clips from some or whatever. And so many of them do this. Almost every single Netflix show or, or um, film has this 
message that they just hit you over the head with like over and over and over throughout the show. And they don't allow for characters of color or poor characters, uh, which by the way are few and far between, or, or if they are there, they're always represented by white women um, or white people in general. Uh, for more sympathy, I guess, or like they don't allow like the quote unquote ethnic characters to be anything other than these props to fulfill some sort of message about uh, the morality of diversity, right? So it's not a question of like just having these characters for the sake of having these characters. It's always like we have to fulfill a certain number of spots that that are like almost like a quota system for black characters and poor characters and Asian characters and Hispanic characters. And then like a disabled character and a gay character and a trans character. And it just becomes this, I don't know. It's like overkill. And again, not, not, I'm not going against the diversity part. I think that's great, but it feels so forced sometimes. Whereas in our real lives, you know, in my real life, when I go to New York, for example, let's say, and I'm on campus, I'm interacting with people of a variety of different class backgrounds just by virtue of being in New York and like being on the subway or being on a train or whatever. I'm interacting with people from a variety of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, I'm interacting with people who are um, cis and trans and gay and straight and like fill in the blank um, in terms of sexualities and gender representation. And then I'm, I'm, I'm sitting across from people who may have physical disabilities or mental disabilities or whatever. It is so diverse, right? And this is the case for many situations just in our everyday lives, whether we realize it or not, because some of these things are not always visually apparent, right? Like in the same ways that maybe race are. So in knowing that, right, and knowing that our everyday lives, especially at least speaking for myself, my everyday life is one that involves just naturally interacting with people from these diverse backgrounds, it feels, it's frustrating for me when these shows take that diversity and, as I said, turn it into something that's like a points game or a quota system. And it feels very forced, right? Um, it does not feel like, it doesn't feel natural in any way to me. And I don't know how to explain why that is, but I think just because it's almost like you can see the ticker in the back of your your head when you're watching the show. It's like, okay, there's the disabled character. Okay, there's the there's the like token black character. Okay, there's the like set of Asian characters. Okay, there's the Muslim character. Okay, there, you can almost like feel it in your head. Um, and it just feels very forced. And so beyond the Netflix shows, um, which which tend to do that a lot. And I think Netflix in particular, even where they do well in terms of diversity, end up doing poorly in this like didactic moral messaging because it's overkill, right? Like every every single show or film has to like wrap up with this like, okay, kids, let's come around the fire and talk about, you know, like let's get in a circle and talk about the message from this show. I'm going to show you like what each scene meant and like how this plays out and what this means in terms of like what you should do and what's good and what's bad and what's wrong and what's right. It just, it's like too much. Right. Um, but even, even channels like HBO, which are known for being salacious on the sexual end for having just like all kinds of like raunchy material, but then on top of that, you know, very hyper-violent material, all of these things, like you, you just got over, you know, however many years, decades worth of Game of Thrones, uh, which is just like ultra violence on film. Um, and, and yet the next week you're expected to like watch a series that's about, uh, you know, fill in the blank and it's going to be this like happy go lucky, but hyper moralistic, hyper diverse, you know, it's just the opposite of basically like the opposite of Game of Thrones, right? Game of Thrones was incredibly white, um, incredibly violent, incredibly sexually graphic and all fill in the blank, right? Like basically what you don't want your kids to watch. And it was one of the highest grossing shows, if not the highest grossing show in HBO's history. Um, I don't know what that says about Americans, but I think you know what it says about Americans, but we won't go there. Um, but then the answer to that is often like when we, when we complain about the problems of shows like that, the answer to that is again, this sort of overly didactic, very apparently tokenistic um, show that incorporates diversity. And for me, that show right now, funny enough, is 
Sex in the City. There's a reboot of Sex in the City called Just Like That or And Just Like That or something like something of that to, uh, nature. And I watched the first two episodes because, believe it or not, like those of you who know me um, very well, you know that I like this kind of cheesy stuff and like romance comedies and things like that, believe it or not. I like a lot of reality TV too, like terrible reality TV. So um, get you a girl who can do both, right? <laughs> who likes this like cheesy shit, but who also can talk about um, economic theories and whatnot. But yeah, I think that those shows are just, it's kind of like my guilty pleasure, right? Or my, my, you know, killing time kind of stuff and things that I have on in the background while I'm cleaning or doing whatever. And I started, so I started watching and just like that or whatever it's called. (laughs) And it's so bad, but it's not bad in the typical Sex in the City way. So like old Sex in the City, including the Sex in the City movies, which were terrible, but the way that they were problematic was that, you know, they did not have any main characters of color for the first uh, few or the first the first iteration of it, actually, like the whole whatever six uh, seasons of Sex in the City. They didn't have none of the women. Of course, the main four women are of color. And then some of them would date men of color, but it was always like so offensive. I mean, the exchange with Samantha and her black lover was just it was like oh my God, that episode is just, oh Jesus, like trash heap levels of bad. Um, And I don't even remember if any of them, I don't think any of them had any Asian love interests or Arab love interests. I think maybe there was a Hispanic love interest or two, but for the most part, these were white women dating white people and interacting very rarely with people of color unless they were the help. It was like a garbage man or a waiter or something. Um, I know also Samantha had a Brazilian girlfriend at one point who was actually a very famous Brazilian actress. So it was sort of funny to see her on the screen in that capacity. Um, But again, very offensive portrayal of this Brazilian woman is like hyper passionate and possessive and kind of crazy. And it just kind of played into these ideas about the crazy Latina or whatever. Um, And so that was kind of the first first few rounds of the show's approach to diversity, basically none. And similarly to Girls, which this was also a complaint about the show Girls, which I enjoyed Girls, but it was definitely frustrating and distracting to see these, like, again, four white women just, like, living their lives in New York City with no or very little interaction with people of color, save stereotypical transactional kind of, inter- like, exchanges. Um and I think that that, you know, these, the way that these shows are, are done is, is always from the perspective of white people, but I think in a way that's like even more, um, more offensive than, than the way some things play out in reality. And I know that there are definitely white people who live in New York City who have just like all white friends and who have, who interact only with other white people, but you have to go out of your way to kind of do that um, in a place like New York City. And so not to have any (laughs) overlap, which is kind of, it's absurd, you know, even though I know it does happen, but you can't, you can't have a TV show like that. You know, what's the point? It's just kind of, I don't know, like you could have had them in Nebraska or something then. And there's diversity in Nebraska too. So I I don't know what the point of having these sorts of all white casts and all white extras kind of situation is. I don't know the purpose in New York. Um, But anyway, first six seasons of Sex and the City got trashed by people who focus on, you know, the question of diversity and stuff. And a lot of people who were writing on pop culture, who were people of color, black people, et cetera, were were commenting on this. Um, Same thing with girls. And uh, both shows did well, very well, made a lot of money, were on for several seasons. Um, And so Sex and the City, unlike girls thus far, it's kind of interesting there hasn't been a girls reboot yet, but um, there may be in the future. But the, the Sex and the City... Um, films also suffered from the same problem in that their portrayals of people of color were very offensive. Um, I know in the second, I think like the second Sex in the City movie, they go to Dubai or something, or so they go somewhere in the Middle East. I can't remember. I think Dubai. And just like, let, like there's joke, quote unquote, joke after joke after joke that's just totally offensive and made at the expenses expense of like Middle Eastern women, Arab women, 
um, and men. And then there's like this whole in the in the previous episode or the previous one, like the sex first Sex in the City movie, they go to Mexico if I'm remembering correctly, and there are offensive aspects to that as well. And it's just I don't know. And the other thing is like in the first film. Um, the first film, Sex and the City film, there's this um, secretary for Carrie. So the secretary's name, I think, is Louise. And she is played by Jennifer. I cannot remember her last name right now. Oh, my God. She's a very famous singer. She won American Idol or came in second on American Idol. I'm not going to look it up right now, but her name is Jennifer something. <laughs> She's a very famous, uh, but it's escaping my mind right now very famous black singer um and at the time that she did the film she was still a bit heavier weight wise she lost a ton of weight um over time and like got kind of thin uh I mean not not she's not like skinny but she's she's much thinner than she was but at the time she was playing the the secretary on this show or like personal assistant is probably a better way to put it she was bigger and so you had this imagery that was like so gone with the wind-esque but like the New York updated version it was horrible like the the they tried to make it like they were friends but it was in that very um again like offensive way where you have people talking about the people who help them in their lives and that like they're that are their employees as their friends like their buddies it's like oh the one black person you call your friend is actually your employee it's a very weird dynamic um and so I think that the the imagery just like the optics of it all added to how offensive it was um we heard a little bit about her life but for the most part we didn't get a ton of background information on her or see her, I guess is the better way to put it. We didn't see her in action beyond her interactions with Carrie. And given, you know, Jennifer was not at the time, um, she hadn't been acting a ton yet. It was one of her first, I think maybe the first uh, role for her. So she wasn't as skilled in terms of her acting. She's much better now. I mean, I think her her work that she did on um, the Broadway play that became a movie uh, was very good. Again, I'm forgetting so many names right now, but she did... Um, there was a film version of the play that's based on the Supremes um, with the black singers. And again, I'm forgetting everything. I'll try to remember and post all this stuff in the show notes. Um, but anyway, and Eddie Murphy was in it. Beyonce was in it. Uh, but she was also, she's she played one of the main characters and did an amazing job in this film. Um, but that came later. That was after Sex and the City. So uh, I think you know, after having the record from those two films being terrible and being widely panned for their um, racial insensitivities, Sex and the City has since responded, at least in their newer iteration, with this kind of overhaul of um, all their problems from the previous seasons and movies. And so they have tried to really um, insert these questions of racial diversity, sexual diversity, um, not so much economic diversity, but definitely questions. There's a little bit more um, inserted in there, kind of skewering the wealth of these women, um, you know, in the show. And <laughs> it's too much. Let me just... <laughs> Let me just say that. And it's funny that I was thinking about recording this episode a few days ago. And then this morning, I happened to come across an article in Slate, actually, that criticizes the new um, direction of the show. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. But basically, they make Miranda, who is um, played by, um, not Sarah Jessica Parker, but is played by the woman who ran for governor in New York. Again, I'm forgetting everybody's names right now, so please forgive me. This is so embarrassing, but my brain is just fried. Um, but she ran for governor against Cuomo, and it's a shame that she wasn't elected because she would have done a better job and probably would not have sexually harassed her employees. Um, but she played, she plays Miranda, who is like this corporate lawyer, um, you know, kind of a hard ass. She's a feminist. Like she, she doesn't want to marry her partner for a long time and she has a baby without being married and there's all this stuff and she's just kind of like you know and then at one point she considers if she's going to have an abortion there's just a lot of things that happen in the first iteration of the show that are arguably very progressive right um at least in the portrayal of this particular character and yet this time around 
she is kind of turned into, as the article put it, like an aggressive Karen, right? Um, she is a white woman who's trying to educate herself on race and ethnicity and sexuality, but who's stumbling in the process and failing and kind of embarrassing herself over and over and over. And it's really difficult to watch. And I think the reason it's so difficult to watch is because like, yeah, you may know people like that, or you may, you may be kind of like encountering people like that now who after the George Floyd um, uprisings or who after, you know, Trump was elected or whatever, were trying to get their shit together on this front and they were doing the reading and they were going to protests and they were like going to workshops and whatever. And so you're watching these people educate themselves in real time and stumble in the process. And there are people like that, you know, like given there are people like that, but it just, the way that the show deals with it is, and the intentionality of it is like too much. Like it's, it's over the top. It really makes you kind of hate the character. And in some ways you almost wish that it would go back to the original setting, you know, you know, Miranda of the three or the four women was kind of like one of the least annoying ones in that sense. She, her character really didn't do a lot of stuff that would have been considered offensive, like culturally or whatever. Um, but for this season, it's just, they're making her out to be this rather annoying, highly flawed, and like hyper self-aware character, but self-aware in a way that's just like frustrating to watch. You know, like it makes it, it makes it uncomfortable, but unenjoyable, right? Like it's not uncomfortable. It's not uncomfortable in a way where you can be like, yeah, like she's going to get better. She's like, like you're rooting for her. It's uncomfortable in a way where it's just kind of annoying and you just want to fast forward to the next scenes that don't involve her. Um, and then I think as well, for example, Carrie, who's the main character, she is put in a position where she's like on a podcast and she's on a podcast with a person who is gender nonconforming, non-binary. Um, I don't remember if the person identifies as trans or not, um, but is the person who playing this role and she's the, so she, Carrie is going to the studio to do these podcasts. Okay. So the person I'm talking about is her boss or like the main host for this podcast that's made up of Carrie, the main host who is Latina, um, or Latinx. And then the, there's like an Asian American male additional co-host. Okay. They're all, the other two are comedians and Carrie is a, you know, a former sex columnist. And so they have her on as, kind of the token, they literally say like, she's the token white cis hetero, uh, lady. And then the other two are supposed to fill in as some sort of like major diversity point type people, you know, like Hispanic and queer and Asian and whatever. Um, and so that, <laughs> that on an, on a, like on its face is kind of annoying because even the jokes that the main, um, host makes are like, trying to be funny but on the basis of being queer but like they're not funny um and I don't know maybe some people will find them funny but I just thought that the the attempt at humor but like to make it so diversity focused kind of makes the whole point of it fall flat I would rather the person just be there as the host and you know they do their show or whatever like it would have been cooler to show everyone engaged in putting together the podcast and like talking as opposed to just focusing so much on this person's identity in a way, again, that was very like hit you over the head with it, didactic and not enjoyable because it's like you're being signaled. Okay. This is for diversity, right? We're doing, look at us doing diversity. Um, and then beyond that character, by the way, who's played by, um, the person who was in, uh, Grey's Anatomy, I don't know if y'all remember, uh, they played, I think a nurse on Grey's Anatomy. I never watched Grey's Anatomy, but I remember this person kind of getting, um, famous because they came out as bisexual and then, um, like there was some controversy somewhat very mild, but, um, you know, and then also they're Latino. And so like, it was kind of a the whole thing, right. Um, or Latinx, I should say. And so it was a whole thing, uh, with regard to that particular character on Grey's Anatomy. And then also the person was like bigger size wise than the majority of the actors 
an actress or like the actresses, because at that time they identified as uh, female uh, and a woman, like gender wise on, on the show. So like there were a lot more, um, there were just like elements of that person's identity that became markers and made them um, kind of the center of discussion at the time uh, when, when they were on Grey's Anatomy. And then now that they're on uh, the Sex in the City reboot, it's like that's all the character ever talks about. Um, I don't know. It just is a weird, it's a weird setup. I'm not, I don't like it. You know, like why not, if you're going to have a non-binary character on the show, have them just be on the show as a non-binary character. They don't need to like announce every single scene. Hi, I'm so-and-so and and I'm a non-binary character filling in for like, I'm going to, I'm going to fill in for the diversity point for, um, gender expression and sexuality and whatever. Like, it's just too much. Like the, they're going, it's offensive the degree at which or degree degree to which they are trying to kind of tokenize these people as if they want a pat on the back for finally representing people of color and queer people and whatnot. Um, and then speaking of people of color, although this character is also of color, um, but (laughs) there are now surprisingly black characters who don't just work for the sex in the city characters. In fact, they're, women with completely separate lives and lives of their own that are disconnected from these white women. Um, in previous, in the previous movies, at least, you know, Louise, as I mentioned, was like the only black character that they interacted with on a regular basis. And she was an employee for, for, um, Carrie. And then in this version of, um, the show, there are, so there's a black best friend or what seems like is going to become a best friend for, one of the characters there is a black professor of um law who is uh teaching miranda the one i mentioned earlier who like used to be a corporate lawyer and now so now miranda's had a change of heart she wants to go into like human rights law or something and defend women around the world which i'm like oh my god i know this is going to go in directions i don't even want to see it's going to be very um white savior-esque and like bad and even the funny part is like on the show they even have her kind of recognize that right she's like I don't want to be a white savior blah 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 and like her interactions with this professor she has several moments where she kind of like helps the professor and then the professor like gets offended and doesn't want her to help her and then she's like you're trying to be a white savior but it's just very awkward and like the writing is like nothing I've ever seen in terms of people people's interactions like I would not if someone white helped me at a moment that I needed some help I don't think I would be like excuse me but you're being a white savior can you stop helping me please like it's just so it's like over the top right I, it, ugh, it's so bad it's so bad like especially if it's a white person I know like this is her student right and um you know Miranda is a white woman she's her student they're roughly the same age um the professor might even be a little bit younger than Miranda I'm not sure how, what their age is but I think they're more or less the same age right like in their 50s um and it's just so it's just too it's like too much I can't like no one talks like this you know like the way that they did the script especially for the people of color we do not talk like that right and we may have conversations on our own, like amongst ourselves and mention something like that, we might say, oh, you know, like, so-and-so helped me out today, but it just felt kind of, it felt like too much, like they went overboard and whatever, but no one's going to be like, excuse me, I feel like you're fulfilling a white savior complex in this interaction. Like no one talks like that. And if they do talk like that, they need to stop it because they sound like a robot or like some sort of, (laughs) I don't know. It it doesn't make any sense. And then, um, and then so there's that exchange. And then there's the, the black woman that, um, becomes best friends with one of the characters, Kristen Davis, cause Kristen Davis's character. I can't remember her, um, Charlotte. Sorry. I was going to say, I can't remember her name on the show, but her name on the show is Charlotte. She's the more like kind of uptight conservative one, whatever the traditional one. Um, she's almost like classically Abby, if you can imagine, but like, uh, a sex in the city character. Um, and she has, a uh she like is so she has a daughter that she adopted before she was able to give birth on her own who is from China I believe and then uh she has her own daughter who is biological and it seems like they're trying to, that she might be queer in some way or like 
gender nonconforming or something. She doesn't like to wear dresses um, and it seems kind of tomboyish, but I'm not sure if they're going to go somewhere with this um, on the sexuality front or not, or like the, the gender identity front or not. And then there's a, um, anyway, Charlotte's new best friend is like this ultra wealthy black lady. <laughs> and I'm like, I love that the black women on this show are, you know, one's a, one's a professor at Columbia and then one is like a philanthropist or something. She says some, she comes from money, it seems, or something like that. She's very wealthy and like wears these hideous, hideous outfits. Just side note, like there's one outfit that she wears where it looks like they, they're like earrings attached, like hoop earrings attached to it. It's just horrible. Like the, the clothing this time around is a lot. Um, it's bad. <sighs> but anyway, um, I think that there's they're trying really hard. They're trying really hard to make sure that these are like super women and that they are defying the odds. And they're like supposed to be these role models to white women and like better than the white women and richer than the white women, smarter than the white women. And again, it's coming across in a way that's still like the other side of this horrible stereotypes coin is that the black characters are not allowed to be people. And the characters in general of color are not allowed to be people. They have to be these like perfect specimens of humanity. Even like, <clears throat> excuse me, when I look at the two daughters, right, that I was just talking about, Charlotte's daughters, you know, the Asian American daughter, the adopted daughter is perfect. You know, she's, she's hyper feminine and she's amazing piano player and she's really smart. And she's like, basically the, you know, young adult version of what Charlotte wanted to be, whereas her other daughter, her white daughter, is supposed to be this, like, rebel and imperfect and, like, flawed and whatever. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I don't know. I, I get I get the feeling that they're trying to overcompensate with their characters of color. And in, in as a result, they not only make them these symbols of morality and, like, perfection but also just again that 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 in and of itself is a kind of dehumanizing um process because you're you're basically making them superhuman which makes them non-human right it, it's almost like a it's it rem, it's like a film version or a tv version of what people did with Stacey Abrams um or Michelle Obama or some of these other like prominent black women um that that I think people in popular media, including social media, especially on the liberal end, turned into these superheroes. And like Amanda Gorman is another example, right? They turn them into these superhuman beings who can do no wrong, who have no flaws, who are, who overcame all the odds to become these like perfect, strong, like whatever. And, and I think, you know, that too can be harmful. And I've mentioned this and may do a separate episode entirely on this, but there was a, there's been kind of a movement online. And I even talked to one of my students about this the other day, um, because she had expressed some, some concerns about being pushed too hard and being, having such high expectations placed on her, you know, um, as a black female student. And I think that there is, that pressure is real. And on the one hand, you know, we have the pressure to succeed because society in many, for many years, and I would argue even today, saw us as less than, right? But then now there's this weird trope where we're supposed to be greater than, we're supposed to be the ultimate, we're supposed to be those who are going to save the world and on whom white people should lean for some sort of salvation. And it becomes like a magical Negro situation, but the female version, right? Like the ma magical Negress, that trope from films of the black man and originally who would just kind of come in and save everybody um, through his, his magical, literally magical in some cases, if you look at some Stephen King or not Stephen King, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg films um, like the green mile and whatnot. Uh, but we're expected to be that, right? We're expected to be these magical beings who are going to come in and save everything. And women, young women, young black women particularly have been kind of responding to that with a nope, they're like, we're not going to save you. That's not our goal. We're opting out of all of this shit. Like we, we are okay. And these are their words. Like I'm not, 
You know, I'm not putting words in the mouth. They're like, we're okay being mediocre. Like we should be allowed just like white men and just like any other group of people, but especially white people to just be, just be right. And to not have to fulfill some sort of major expectations just because we're black women and we should be allowed to be flawed and we should be allowed to like have days off. You know what I'm saying? Like from, from work and from school and from all of these pressures, we should be able to opt out of that. Um, and, and not feel obligated to be the straight A student and the, the hyper excelling employee and all that stuff. And, and when I say have a break from it, I don't mean like, you know, leaving school or something, but I'm saying like having a break from the pressure, not feeling like that, that kind of pressure needs to be met with perfection. Um, because it's, it's an expectation that's unrealistic. And in some ways it, it's what I see happening with black women it serves multiple purposes, right? So it becomes this kind of token minority or model minority um, approach that we've seen done with Asian American people um, and Asian immigrants in this country. There's also an element of it that feels almost explicitly um, meant to further divide black men and women. Um, So as if to say, you know, these are the good ones. And you all, men, black men, you all are the bad ones. And that is that is not to say, by the way, that like black men don't have things they need to work on. They do, like we all do. Um, but I think as a as a kind of it creates a dichotomy, right? Because you don't see like the the superhuman, like super excelling black man trope, right? That that doesn't exist. What's happening in these sort of liberal circles is arguably a a pitying, if not demonization of black men, whereas black women are upheld as these like paragons of humanity. <laughs> and it's just a weird, it's a weird, something's funny is happening, you know, like it's kind of a strange, it's a strange uh, set of tropes that are, that make me incredibly uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that. And I think that on the one hand, it could be somewhat of a reaction to what in the past few decades has been almost solely focused on like saving, quote unquote, saving black boys, right? And raising them as a society um, to avoid a quote unquote life and crime and all this stuff, right? I think you see these kinds of like the Obama approach with my brother's keeper and stuff like that. Um, These ideas of like, the men of these um, all black schools and HBCUs, like how I'm a Howard man or I'm a Morehouse man or whatever that this, and these, these responses from men to police violence and things like that with a kind of a patina of respectability politics on every single aspect of their activism. You know, the men dressing up in suits to walk downstairs at these magnificent schools or libraries or monuments or whatever. It's just kind of a, it's a weird, I don't know. And then I think that's coupled with like, like the other side of this is the incredibly sexist and, um, you know, problematic videos of people like Kevin Samuels who are, you know, basically, uh, pickup artist type commentators, but they wear suits. And then they spend the majority of their up their shows just like shitting on black women. That's like what they do. Um, and while they encourage black men to date black women, they they like to spend most of the time blaming black women for not being the first choice for a lot of black men. It's just a very it's a very it's a weird uh, rabbit hole if you ever were to go down it. I don't recommend it, but it's something that is kind of an inter like inner community conversation that I'm not going to get into that much on this on the show um but it's definitely an interesting area of the internet let's just leave it at that um but I think that these these tropes about these kind of newer tropes about black women saving the world and shit are very very bad (laughs) and I think that the show unfortunately despite all of its efforts to be politically correct are now falling back on these these kinds of tropes that I just mentioned in a way that is, again, it's harmful, but it's a type of harm that you can't quite point to, which makes it almost more insidious, right? The previous iterations of these shows, you could say, okay, look, they lack diversity. They need diversity. They need better characters or characters at all of color. Um, you're in New York. Of course, you're interacting with people of color, right? But then <laughs> their response is to then 
double down on some stereotypes, albeit quote unquote positive stereotypes, which are just as bad in many ways um, and can cause damage as well. And these stereotypes are at the same time harder to combat. It's harder to look at someone and say, this positive stereotype is harmful to my community in XYZ ways. And you sound like you're crazy by saying, well, why is a positive stereotype bad, right? When you're trying to pick that apart, people will ask you that. Like, it can't be bad. It's a good thing, right? Like, don't you want to be seen positively? But I think that there's, that's what makes this so much worse, actually, because it's, it's playing on and harping on these stereotypes and, and tokenisms and things like that in a way that is so overbearing that if you were to criticize it, the response would be, can't you see me trying? Don't you see us doing better? Why aren't you happy that we're doing better? Why aren't you like pleased that we're we're listening to you people and we're putting you in our shows and we're putting you in these great roles and you're the good guys and you know, it it becomes the response to I guess the response to that becomes one of basically fulfilling it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, like they become the quote unquote white saviors and we become the ungrateful lowly people of color who who are never satisfied so a lot going on here I don't think sex in the city by the way is the only example of this but it's just one that's on my mind because I saw the episodes a couple nights ago and just said oh this is pretty bad but I'll include the slate article I haven't read it I've only seen the um the title of it so I'm not sure where the author goes but I can take a guess um and and I'll include it in the show notes um and you know it makes me kind of wonder in particular, I think, I think filmmakers of color, are, I'm sure already talking about these things, but, um, you know, where do we go from here? If, if this is how people of color will be included in film and TV, is this, is, is this what we want? Right. I think the answer is no. Um, and we, I mean, people who are creatives in these fields who are of color, I hope are, are looking at better ways to, include people of color and queer people and other groups in these shows um, without tokenizing us and without it being this like a f- rather offensive hyper-liberal garbage um, <laughs> that doesn't really have a way out. And, um, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there are more people of color in the writing room for Sex in the City this time around. But as I said at the beginning of this episode, that doesn't mean anything, right? Like not all people of color think the same. Not all people of color come from the same backgrounds. And some people of color are satisfied with this nonsense. You know, like some people look at that and they're like, yeah, that's what I want. I just want to see women who look like me or men who look like me on the screen. I don't care what they're doing. And if they're perfect, even better, right? And that's not necessarily what I'm looking for. And I don't think that's what a lot of people of color are looking for. Um, Maybe. But the ones that I know and that I'm friends with, we're not looking for that. Um, we want to be, we want to be on the screen, but we don't want to be included just for the sake of including us. And we certainly don't want to be fulfilling some sort of, um, you know, kind of quota of what the show needs to meet. And we don't want to be reduced to these stereotypes, even if they're quote unquote positive, um, because they're harmful nonetheless. They remove our humanity and our imperfection and our, our just like our dynamic. As, the dynamic aspects of being a human being, um, they remove a, us from that. They put us in this separate category that is equally as flawed as showing us in the negative light, only in a negative light. So with that said, that is, wow, we're coming up on an hour. Um, I really appreciate those of you who've been hanging out with me for Podmas and listening. And I also pr- appreciate the grace <laughs> Some of you all have given me um, in my exhaustion and having missed some days just because I've been overloaded with uh, work and I've been tired and yeah hopefully next week I'll be less fatigued Um, we'll see sometimes it's it's a surprise you know this week I was more fatigued than normal Um, but next week hopefully I'll be a little bit less so and I can do some more consistent recording for this uh, thing that I promised to do and that I actually was really enjoying and so hopefully I'll stop falling asleep randomly for several hours when I actually want to be recording these episodes With that said, everyone have a great Sunday. Um, I will 
hopefully be recording again tonight and or tomorrow uh, with additional episodes and certainly the left POC of the week, um, which I believe this time around might be taking us to the Philippines. So I'll, I'll keep you all posted on that. The person I have in mind is from the Philippines, so we'll see. Um, and then, yeah, I hope that everyone had a great weekend and will continue to enjoy the rest of the week. And uh, with that, please take care of yourselves. Oh, also, just as a reminder, because I keep seeing these like weird ass articles that are like, I got COVID because I ate inside a restaurant or like at a party or whatever. Let me just say this as a PSA. If you are going to be indoors in a closed environment, so a, a place that has four walls and some doors, you need to be wearing a mask. And you need to be wearing a mask the whole time. <laughs> like you will get COVID. You can get COVID, especially with Delta and Omicron, you know, in this hustle up right now in the US. Um, you this basically let me put it this way. COVID is airborne. If you open your mouth or have your nose or mouth exposed, you know, if you wear your mask wrong or if you are eating, you're removing your mask at any point and you're taking a breath, which yes, you will be doing as you're eating and drinking you are exposing yourself to COVID. And I I know that that sounds elementary to some people who have been keeping up with this stuff, but to others who may be listening and may not know that, I just want to say it. You have to, you have to, like, you need to avoid indoor dining right now if you want to stay safe. And that includes if you're vaccinated. It even includes if you're boosted, okay? Um, the other thing I would say is if you are in a public place, and you're in an enclosed space. So like you're on public transportation, you're on a bus, you're on a train, or you're going into a store or whatever. You need to, at this point, um, you got to have the high grade masks, y'all. Like cloth masks are cute, but they're not necessarily doing the job and uh, in protecting you as well, right? And so if you want to protect yourself and others, I would highly, highly, highly suggest you get one of the following either a KF94 mask, a KN95 mask, or an N95 mask. Those are the top three. Um, I know in some countries they have different categorizations for the high-grade masks, like the PFF2 or whatever. Um, you have to look it up on your own, but in the U.S., those are the three top available, easily available um, masks that are high-grade, that are going to be high filtration, filtering out these particles and um, there's also now even an N99 mask that you can buy. So if you are interested in buying masks or need masks, if you yourself need masks that are like this, um, you know, I was at one point giving out masks to people who worked in, uh, outward facing jobs. And I may go back to doing that if I have any extra, um, from my own supply, I'll just like mail them to people as I was doing before, but please y'all get one of those three types of masks and wear that. Make sure the fit is appropriate for your face. Um, you want to have everything sealed up. You don't want to feel any air coming out of anywhere. Um, there are tests that you can do, fit checks and whatnot that you can look up online. But please, 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 I beg you to protect yourself and your others and to prevent the spread of this disease. You need to have on a real, like I say, a real mask, right? A, a, a KF94, a KN95, or an N95. You need to have it fit properly. If it does fit properly, especially the KN95 and the N95, it's going to be a tight fit. Like you're, you're going to feel like you're being suffocated, but that is what's going to protect you. The KF94 has a looser fit, but the depending on the brand that you get, um, but it is still, you can adjust it so that it's definitely sealed in a better way. Um, and it has a higher filtration um, than what you're going to have in a regular surgical mask and things like that. Uh, and also, as I said, just avoid as much as possible indoor spaces. And when I say indoor spaces, I mean more particularly indoor spaces where you're going to be opening your mouth without a mask, <laughs> like eating. You have to be the judge of how much risk you want to take. But also just remember that when you take a risk in doing that, you're not just risking for yourself. You're risking for the people that you interact with. You're risking for your family members. You're taking a risk for your husband or your wife or your children or your friends or your coworkers. Okay. It, you're not like, this is a communal exercise. Okay. And, uh, we have to be more responsible towards each other and considerate of, of what it may mean for some people to get COVID, even if they're vaccinated, it could be very bad news. Um, and I also just want to say like what I have done, uh, quite frequently, uh, you know, within the pandemic is I have, prioritized, right? I have said, what is actually important? What is an actual need versus a want? Like I have not from the, like literally since March, 
of 2020, I have not eaten inside a restaurant. Okay. (laughs) I have not wanted to risk it. And for what? Like for food that I can cook at home. Okay. Um, Or that I can get as takeout. So please, like, please, 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 please do what you can to protect yourself and others. Be responsible. We are not done with this yet. But if we all kind of do what we're supposed to do, because our government sure is not doing what they're supposed to do, but if we do what we're supposed to do, and if we can collectively manage that, we can and hopefully will see an end to this pandemic. Um, I'm not enjoying this. Trust me when I say that. And I know a lot of other people who are really, really hunkering down and have been from the beginning who are not enjoying this. We don't want to see this continue. We don't want to see more people dying. Um, So please do your part and, and recognize that, especially if you're on the left, if you consider yourself a leftist in any way, shape or form, your central, like a central tenet to your political ideology should be about concern for others and care for others. Right. And, and understanding that we need to operate as a large community, not as individuals off on our own islands. That's like some ANCAP shit. All right. So don't, be like that. <laughs> Think about the people that you're affecting with the choices that you make and really try your best to to prevent spread um, and pre- prevent from getting it, but also prevent spread, okay, by any means necessary. So, all right, with that said, now I'm going to close out. Everyone, please take care of yourselves. Have a great week. Have a great end of the weekend. And I will hopefully be speaking to you again soon. Bye-bye. Oh, and of course, like right after I finished recording this, I remembered the names of the people I was trying to think of during the um, discussion. So Jennifer Hudson uh, is the actress I was trying to think of earlier. And the, sh- the movie that she was in where she played one of the main characters and like really well actually was Dreamgirls. And then um, the other character, Miranda, whom I mentioned several times, she was played by Cynthia Nixon, whom, as I mentioned before, like who I mentioned before was a uh, candidate for governor from the left, actually. She was a progressive candidate for governor against Cuomo. And we know how that all ended up. But anyway, everyone take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.